We are in our, our study on Bible lists, and we've been doing this topical study for, well, a few weeks now, looking at Wilmington's Bible list. That's the book that I, I referenced earlier. And it's just a compilation of various topics throughout Scripture and put in a very concise list form. And I, I was looking at that for some other study, and I said, you know, this would be a good kind of Sunday night service um, Bible study as we go through various topics. And it kind of gives us maybe some some lists of things that we don't normally put together um, in our, usually because I'm, I'm much more into expositional preaching, you know, sticking to one text and going verse by verse and all that, where this is much more the uh, going from a topic on certain things. And tonight we're going to look at the, the excuses of the Bible. Last week it was the covenants of the Bible, and uh, I was going down the alphabet and I skipped D, but I'll probably come back to it. But... Um, excuses in the Bible and there are a lot of excuses and uh, it's important to understand that uh, first of all uh, I think that the idea of excuses is something that is not unfamiliar to any of us we all like them right we like to make excuses and uh, when I was in the military that was one of the first things you learned isn't it when you get into basic training that you learn you don't make excuses you take responsibility for your action and you should never say oh but or because no nope, it's your fault you know and you learn that um, I wish I had perfectly practiced that you know, all the time because it's easy to make excuses years ago uh, the UPI news ran um, just a, a funny kind of little blurb in the paper and it was actually comments that were received on insurance forms from the Metropolitan Insurance Company, um, comments from policyholders, and they were explanations of automobile accidents. And I thought I would read a few of those. One says, an invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. Another car collided with mine without warning me of its intention. How about this one? I had been driving my car for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. That's quite a long trip, isn't it, I guess? Here's another one. As I reached the intersection, a hedge sprang up, obscuring my vision. Sounds right, huh? Um, How about this one? I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) Oh, boy. And I like this one. The pedestrian had, not for him, but the pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran over him. Oh, boy, that's not good. But these are on actual insurance forms. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. I've never had a telephone pole chase me down, but that's what it sounds like, right? Uh, The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. (laughs) And then here it says, the indirect cause of this accident was a little guy in a small car with a big mouth. That's probably true. Um, but people make excuses, don't we? And so some of those are kind of funny, I guess. I mean, I don't know how that turned out. Hopefully nobody got severely injured. But, but it's interesting how we, we kind of project excuses when something happens that probably is more our fault, or at least we should take some fault in that. And I want to look at these, these um, excuses found in the Bible. Some you may be familiar with, some not. But the first ones, and... Really, the first excuses are the oldest excuses in the book, and those go way back to the book of Genesis, right? You have Genesis chapter 3, and in Genesis chapter 3, you have on that chapter the first sin, right? We have uh, Satan appearing in the garden, and he um, comes and 
Eve and Adam are tempted. They eat of the fruit that they were not to eat. And immediately they become aware of good and evil. And they realize what they've done is wrong. And they begin to make excuses when confronted by the Lord. And the first excuse is found in Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 12. It says, Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And before we go any further, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and we thank you that we can just study the Bible tonight. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who, without excuse, came to this world and dwelt among us, went to the cross and took every sin, every shameful thing, everything we've ever done, And it was nailed and placed upon him. And thank you, Lord, for that great sacrifice. Thank you for the hope that is beyond the grave. These songs that we sang tonight, like in the sweet by and by. And how firm a foundation. All because of Jesus. And we thank you for that tonight. And we pray as we open up your word, you'd open it to our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The oldest excuse in history is a man blaming a woman. How about that? That never happens, does it, men, right? Um, but it does, doesn't it? And, we, and it's not so much, Eve was the only other person. And I think you could say this, that we are good, or people are good at blaming other people. And that's one of the, the areas that we go to, you know, right away. Uh, how'd this happen? Well, this guy did it, or that gal did it, or whatever. Adam didn't have anybody else to point to. He pointed to his wife, and he said, she made me do it. Now, we know from that excuse and from the context of that in Genesis 3 that indeed both of them were fully aware of the repercussions of what they would do. I say fully aware in an innocent sense. God had told them very clearly, if you eat of that fruit, you will die. It's that simple. And they didn't follow that through. And then, of course, Satan comes along and he uh, tempts them. And Adam is the one that's held responsible in that, by the way. And his excuse didn't hold up. God doesn't say, okay, Adam, I guess you're, not on the, you're off the hook. No, not at all. Adam, through Adam, according to Scripture, is sin, and the sin nature is passed on generationally. And we, are, we have inherent sin from Adam. And, of course, we have the practice of sin that we learn ourselves, don't we, uh, as well. Well, in the very next verse, we have the next excuse. And this is the second oldest excuse in the Bible, and it's the devil made me do it, Right? It says, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And again, she's factual in that the serpent deceived her, although it was arguable that deception shouldn't have occurred because God was clear. His word had already been, his revelation had already been given to them. But she blames the devil, blames the serpent in this case. Sometimes it's easy to blame the devil, isn't it? Sometimes we'd like to say, um, you know, the devil made me do it, and, and somehow that gets me off the hook. And the reality is, more often than not, it's this guy inside that made me do it. And I, I say that carefully. And if, by the way, if that was an excuse, I think of it in the context of the New Testament, when you come to the New Testament, and you have the baptism of Jesus, right, at, at the Jordan River by John the Baptist, And what's the very next public event, or it isn't a public event, what's the very next event in the chronology of the life of Jesus on earth? Remember what the next thing? What happens right after he's baptized? He goes into the wilderness. How long is he in the wilderness? 
40 days fasting. Uh, if you fasted for 40 days, you would be well, weak and hungry, wouldn't you? And, and here's the, the picture. We have the dialogue that appears there of Satan who comes along and tempts Jesus in the areas of all that we're all tempted in, right? Of, of power, of, um, of, of food, for example, right? Of, you know, kingdoms and all those things that he, he comes and he tempts him. And, of course, Jesus uses the word of God, the spoken word of God, or the, the written word of God at that point, to actually rebuke Satan. And we would always say this, and I remember, you know, the argument in, in, in theology classes, you know, could Jesus have sinned, right? What was the purpose of Satan going to Jesus and trying to get him to sin? And, and I, I think the short answer is that no, Jesus did not sin or could not sin. Um, as God the Son, he came without a sinful nature, never had a sinful nature. Uh, the apostles bear record of that. He did no sin. He knew no sin. In him there was no sin. So the devil certainly understood that. Why would he come and tempt Jesus? And I would say this, that I think the Lord allowed that and, and includes that in your Bible so that we get rid of the excuse, the devil made me do it. Because we have the word of God, don't we? And we should, just like Adam and Eve, we should have, they didn't, but they, we should have stood firm and said, well, but no, thus says the Lord. That if I eat this, I, I'm going to die. That's what God said to them. But instead, it was an excuse. And the excuse didn't hold up. The consequences of sin still came. And we still face those same consequences today. You can't get away from it. You come to the next uh, excuse that I could find anyways is in Genesis chapter 19. All the way down there. And that's the context of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know there was great wickedness going on in those cities. There was actually five cities of the plains of Sodom in that southern end of the Dead Sea in, in, or the Salt Sea in, in what is today um, in the land of Israel. And you have those cities which were committing great perversion. And the context of that is described earlier in this chapter. Um, it is alluded to later. And uh, by the way, Jesus validates this judgment when he says in his time it will be more tolerable for the, the people or the men of Sodom and Gomorrah than for this generation in the day of judgment. And so he validates that as a real story, as a real part of history. And I say that not because we don't believe Genesis or something like that, but some would say, we, there's no evidence there was Sodom and Gomorrah, and those, that's a fictitious thing made up, but, but not according to Jesus. And it is something that we, we find out. Well, anyways, we know the story. Two angels come there in Genesis 19 to deliver Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And Lot had, before this, set his heart towards the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a well-watered area. He went there. And he ends up, in, we see it in this chapter, sitting in the gate of the city. That's where these angels first meet him. Um, that was a position of prominence, by the way. There's Lot. He's now part of the, the ruling class, I guess, if there, you want to use that. He's, he's part of the, the elders of the city. And he's sitting in the gate of the city, a very prominent and um, a place that you would want, I guess, if you were moving up in the world in power and prestige. Um, and of course they come and they tell him that he is to leave the city because God is about to judge it and you find 
Lot trying to make every excuse in the book. And the, the, basically the, the, the excuses were because I think he had a very comfortable life there. I mean, if you have a comfortable life, nobody wants to disturb comfort. I mean, I don't, right? I don't want to go sit on a hard chair if I can sit in an easy chair, right? Uh, something like that. But nevertheless, there are times that come. And here he has two angels actually coming to him and warning him. And he begins to make excuses. So let's, we pick it up in verse 16. It says, And while he lingered, the men, that's the angels, took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. And the Lord, and it says, The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So they actually deliver him out of the city. Why? Because God's about to judge it, to destroy a city. <clears throat> so it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And, and I believe this, if Lot had not left, he would have been destroyed with the city. And it, by the way, Lot was... I, he pictures for us the backslidden believer. We know in the epistle of Peter um, where he says that he vexed his righteous soul. In other words, he was a righteous man, but he was vexing his soul with their filthy deeds. And it's possible that people who know the Lord can do sin, right? I don't have to convince you of that, hopefully. But that is the case. And Lot is delivered out of the city, and he begins to make excuses. The angels say, flee to the mountains. Get out of here. And Lot said this, Please, no, lords, my lords, my masters. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. There's an excuse right there. I can't do what you want me to do, because if I go there, I'm going to die. And I think the excuse here shows the heart of Lot and the mind of Lot. He did not understand the, the actual strength of sin and depravity that he was living in and living around. That God had had enough. And God had been merciful, very merciful to that, those, those cities. He had been merciful to those people. He had extended his hand of grace, all of that. And judgment was now upon them coming right that day. And Lot is still thinking, well, maybe I could just kind of not have to do that. And God's still merciful to him. Look what it says. He says, see now, the this, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? For my soul shall live. And instead of fleeing to the mountains, Lot is pleading with the men, let me just go over to this little city of Zoar, is the name of it, which Zoar actually means little, and so as a play on words, I think, with that, it was an insignificant place, but it was better than living in the mountains. That's what Lot thought. And I don't think Lot understood what it would cost him in that trip. We know from the context what happens. He, he's fleeing out. He's going to that little city, and that little city was spared. But his wife looks back, and she's killed, right? She turn, she's judged, um, turns to a pillar of salt, the Bible says. And you see that there was a high cost. Not only does Lot end up losing his, his wealth that he had accumulated in Sodom, um, he lost his prestige. He was no longer sitting in a gate of a city where there was no city. He lost his testimony before that, that's for sure. 
He lost his wife. That's a, that's a hard thing, isn't it? And eventually he would lose, um, well, he would end up living in a cave, and the Bible says having an incestuous relationship with his daughters. The Bible leaves that in there for our, not for our benefit of entertainment, but to, as a stark warning, Lot didn't really finish well. And yet, come to the New Testament, and according to that verse that Peter writes, he was a believer. He was, had a righteous soul. Um, I'm glad that the Lord never leaves us nor forsakes us. Amen. But there's some very disastrous things we can do by making excuses. And Lot was one that made excuses. The next excuse is found in the book of Exodus. We come in the time of Moses, and Moses is out. He has the burning bush experience, this bush that is not consumed, and, and yet he, uh, he goes and, and the voice of God speaks to him. He knows he's on holy ground. You know the story. And then the Lord tells him to go to Pharaoh in Egypt. Now, Moses has been 40 years out of Egypt, and now he's been told, go back to Egypt. And he wants him to speak on behalf of his people, the Jews. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? His first excuse was this, that I'm a nobody. And indeed, he may have truly believed that because here he is in the middle of the wilderness, which is a desert area, and he's been shepherding for these years. And here he is out doing that, and he's, he's literally been a nobody. And, and if you look at Moses' life, there's three, years of, or three periods of 40 years in his life. He lives to be 120, and you have the first 40 years, he's a somebody, isn't he? He's in Pharaoh's courts, raised in Pharaoh's courts as a son, really an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's a somebody. The royal, he, he would have been in line for perhaps being a pharaoh. And then, of course, we know he kills a man and he flees. And now he's a nobody. He's a shepherd out in Midian, you know. And then after God was done with him at that, at age 80, God could use him. But Moses wasn't convinced yet. And he uses the excuse, you've got the wrong person. I think we've all been there before, too. You, you must have the wrong person, God. It can't be me. I can't do that. He goes on in verse 4, or chapter 4. <clears throat> then Moses answered and said to me, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. He uses that excuse. What if people won't listen? Um, by the way, that's the easiest excuse when we don't witness, we don't tell people about Jesus Christ. Um, the silent Christian. We say, well, People might not listen to me. I, they, they, I'm not the smartest guy. I'm a nobody. Why would they ever want to listen to me? And we, when we do that, we make an excuse that invalidates the power of the word of God and the God of the word. Because I have discovered that so often God can use the absolute weakest of things and the, and the things which, which amount to nothing, you know, to confound the wise. I, doesn't First Corinthians say that? He does that. I've mentioned before many times, Mr. Dowie, who to me was one of the finest Bible teachers I ever had, and I mean that in character and also in his, his intellect and, and his knowledge of Scripture and his memorization of the Bible and all of that. 
And he was a man that never went past eighth grade. And it would surprise people when they were sitting, like he would be at some college somewhere, having been invited because someone heard him speak or, you know, sat in a class that he did. And, and then he gets there and they're talking to him and they said, where did you go to school? You know, where did you go to get your Bible education? And he would say, the shipyard in Belfast. Or, or when I was a little kid and some people shared Christ with us and made us memorize verses and, and I never went past eighth grade. And they would just scratch their head. That, that can't be. And I don't mean that to elevate him. He's with the Lord now anyways. But, but I would just say this, that God sometimes takes the things the last people would ever use to bring his word. And you know what? Don't make that excuse that I'm a nobody and I, they won't listen to me anyways. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground. It became a serpent and Moses fled from it. And then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the, the tail. And, and he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. And God uses that and then his hand being pulled into his, his uh, outer garment and back and, and uses these miracles in his own presence. That's all it was, a sign miracle. Because you see, the Egyptians were caught up in sign miracles, weren't they? And God says, Moses, I'm going to take the things that are familiar to you and I'm going to use those things for me. And the rod of Moses becomes the rod of God. His excuses go out, right? <clears throat> and later on, his other excuse is, I'm slow of speech. Um, probably he stuttered, or at least he was slow in his, in his speak. You, you couldn't, your speech, you wouldn't you know, have a fast conversation with Moses, according to what he testifies of. Sometimes we have that excuse too. I could never open up the Bible and share that to somebody or, or even tell them about my own testimony because I'm too whatever, and you name it. We use those excuses. Moses did. Don't do that. Oh, here's another one, and this comes from Exodus chapter 32. And let me go, I think, anyways, where am I? There we are, Exodus chapter 32. <coughs> and you remember when Moses goes up and receives the commandments of God written on the tablets of stone. He comes down off the mountain. And the children of Israel have now made themselves a golden calf and they're worshiping it. I mean, Moses has not gone just a little while and they're already back into worshiping idols. And um, God was going to judge them for it. It was, it was pretty serious. Moses is upset but I, Moses' brother, Aaron, who is the one overseeing all this, has one of the better excuses that, you know, didn't, didn't last, but it, it was an excuse. Moses asked him what happened here, what is going on, and look what Aaron says. So Aaron said, do not let the anger of the Lord become hot. You know the people that they are, are set on evil. Now, he begins by passing blame. Aaron is the the priest right and he's the one who is in charge of the spiritual leadership of his people and immediately he passes the blame and he says not me it's them they're just evil boy we, we make that excuse sometimes huh but then he goes on for they said to me make us gods that shall go before us as for this moses the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
In other words, Moses had just stepped away for a while, and immediately they're saying, well, we've got to be like everybody else. And when they march around, they have some golden image, or they have some idol, or some vain thing that they worship, and, and they, we need that. And it's terrible advice, or terrible, you know, uh, it, it's, it's the sinful depravity of people we always want something that we can touch and feel and, and bow to and make and, and put our will on as opposed to the one true God who's holy, who, who isn't contained in temples and churches or synagogues or anything like that, but he's God. And it's easier for people to worship something that they can touch and feel and look to, like a golden calf, than it is God who demands us to come to him in faith and in holiness. But that's what they do. And here they make this golden calf. Look what he says. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. And so they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. What an excuse. That's a good story, isn't it? In other words, they wanted gods. I told them, hey, get the gold out of your hands, and I'm going to throw it in the fire. So I grabbed up all their gold, their earrings, whatever it is, threw it in the fire, and look at this, a golden calf. It must be of God. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. It's amazing the excuses we'll make when it comes to worshiping anything but God. It's amazing. And I will say I could go on. I'm not, that's not my intention tonight. Um, nor do I like to dwell on only the sin by any means. But, but how often people make excuses to not fellowship in the church or come to a service or, you know, those kind of things or, or just... I need a Sunday off or I got to go and, you know, do this and do that. And we make excuses because it's far easier than to come to him in, in, in spirit and in truth, right? It's easier. Numbers chapter 13 is the next excuse, number six. And you have the ten spies. Remember, 12 were sent into the promised land to spy out the land and... The whole nation of Israel was on the other side of Jordan. They could have gone right in and possessed the land that had been promised to their father Abraham. It was theirs. God told them, I will go in and I'll drive the people out. And instead, uh, Joshua, uh, Moses, you know, sends, in that case, Moses sends out um, these scouts, these spies, and they go into the land, and two come back with a good report. That was Joshua and Caleb. By the way, they'd be the only two of their generation that would enter into the promised land some 40 years later. Um, but the 10 others came back and they, they give this excuse. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. These ten spies give a bad report. And, and they do it based on fear. And by the way, fear will also make you come up with excuses, right? Uh, I, I can't do this because of whatever, right? And of course, we all battled with that during the COVID most recently, you know, of the 
the lockdowns and everything, and it was fear-driven, much of it, really. We know that. Um, and, and there's some reality to it. I'm not making excuses about that, but, but a lot of fear-driven policies and gatherings and all of those things, and, and, and it was a lot of excuses. Sometimes it was excuses because people didn't want to do something. It's like, hey, it's a good excuse. Um, I'm thankful that I think we're, we're moving or we've, we've you know, looked at that and we've seen what we we're like and hopefully don't go back that way, right? Anyways, they say that we are just like grasshoppers. You ever feel afraid? Feel like there's no way I can ever go and be victorious in something? And you'll make every excuse to stay away. You just will. They even resurrect the descendants of Anak. You know, they're, the Anakim are mentioned earlier in Genesis prior to the flood. But in my Bible, the Anakim never got on the, the ark. So that means they were killed in the flood. And later, they're going along and they say, there's giants. They're like the Anakim of old. Now, I don't know if that was just a reference to people who were very large or if this indeed was something like, you know, really giant people like later Goliath was a very gigantic man in in his dimensions. He's described as almost 10 feet tall. I mean, that's a big, tall man. And and, and maybe that's the case, but it's amazing. We'll even resurrect legends (laughs) to make excuses over things, right? We'll do that. Well, the next one is um, number seven, an, offered, uh, an excuse offered by Israel for wanting a king. And that's 1 Samuel chapter 8. And you remember in, in that chapter, you have, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. The people there wanted to be like everybody else. And they said, hey, make us a king. Their excuse is this. Samuel, you're getting old. You're going to pass off the scene and we're going to be left without a leader. I have discovered that God is able to raise up leaders for his people if we'll allow him to. Sometimes... We get into the sort of realm like it all hinges on me or this person or whatever, and we, we, we don't think that God can, he could replace us. You know, <clears throat> my drill sergeant used to say, listen, he's, he'd, he'd usually yell and he'd say, I'll, they'll find another one that looks just like you, you know. And uh, what he was meaning is they would find another recruit that looks just like you, you better shape up, right? And... In reality, we make excuses for tough things and we say, well, we need better leadership or we need whatever. God had told them he wanted to be their, their leader. And they were unique among the nations. They were to be like that. But then they wanted a, a leader like a king and so God gave them a king. That didn't work out so well, did it? Um, that actually is Saul and Saul being the first king of, of Israel. And... Saul was a man who also made a lot of excuses. The first time we see Saul, uh, he is commanded to go out and to make war against the Philistines and also against the Amalekites. And he was, according to what God said, ought to utterly destroy them. And it sounds very harsh. And again, you know, 
thankfully, like the church in this age is not called to go out and take up the sword and go kill people. That's not our mission. That was Israel. Their focus was on a land and on God, same God. But we are on the other, the, a different mission. We have a spiritual kingdom. And the kingdom by which we uh, fight and wrestle against is, is a spiritual kingdom. And our battle is not with people but with really over the souls of people you know that they might receive receive the lord by faith and uh, the mission of the church is to go out and to preach the gospel and to bring that to the nations and israel was different um the people of the amalekites had done great wickedness and god said i'm going to judge them i'm going to use israel to judge them and he was told to destroy them and saul doesn't um, oh, this is, I'm sorry, this, that's next. But this is in chapter 13 is this. Saul takes it upon himself because he's in getting ready to go into battle and there's no, no priests of the tribe of Levi. Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. And so he decides to take on himself the order of a priest, which is not the way God wanted it. And it says, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. So here, Saul does something that on the surface sounds very right, right? I mean, here he is. He goes out and he says, I have to get right. I have to make sure I'm right with God. But in not doing it God's way. Instead, he takes it upon himself to do that. That wasn't his place. He was not of the priestly order of the tribe of Levi. He was Saul, the king. And he goes out into that. Later on, you have in the what was it, 2 Chronicles 26, the account of Uriah. Um, not Uriah, but um, uh, Uzziah. And it was Uzziah that did the same thing. He goes into the temple to burn incense. And the priests actually try to stop him and say, that does not pertain to you. And he goes in, and God judges him with leprosy immediately. And Uzziah ends up outside the camp of his own people, and he he dies a death of a leper, a terrible death. And it was in the time, Isaiah 6 opens up and says, in the year that King Uzziah died, where does Isaiah go? He goes into the temple. And guess what? God's still high and lifted up. Amen. But here Saul, he was the first one to do that as a king. He offers a burnt offering he wasn't supposed to. And it, it almost really, well, it abdicates his, his throne, really, because from there, Samuel says there'll be another, and that's going to be David. We know David was his successor. In 1 Samuel, in, in chapter 15, that goes with that as well. This is the Amalekites. Now go and attack the, Amaleka, the Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, both but kill both man and woman, infant, nursing, child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. I mean, it was scorched earth. And again, I, I, that's what God said. And, and the cup of judgment had risen and it was full. And God said, this is it. Go do that. And Saul doesn't do that. He goes and he partially does that. Like he kills a bunch of people and he does that, but he spares Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Um, he keeps some of the finest animals and he uses the excuse um, that they're going to be offerings for the Lord, right? 
And you have verse 13, Then Samuel went to Saul, and, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And there's a Greek word for that, baloney. He didn't. He didn't perform the commandment of the Lord. He partly did. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? The sheep and the oxen were to be killed. And Samuel looks at, at, at Saul, and Saul's making excuses. And Samuel basically says, What are these animal noises then? if you followed the commandment of God. And Saul said, They have brought them for the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Didn't fulfill it, did he? And that indeed is, is it. And God says, it basically, uh, that David is going to be the next one in line. Saul doesn't, he doesn't let that go. And actually fights not only his enemies that he was supposed to fight, but then he's fighting David, the very next king. And David, because he was a man of God, would not kill Saul even when he had opportunity because he didn't raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He, was a, he feared the Lord on that. And it's interesting, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, that chapter opens up with the death of Saul. And death, Saul was in battle with the Philistines. Someone shoots an arrow and it gets him. And as he lay dying, and there's, there's two different accounts, and you're not really sure exactly what took place. He wanted um, his own people to kill him because he didn't want the enemy to mistreat him. Um, but later, the person that brings news to David that Saul is dead, and also Jonathan, um, is an Amalekite. And the Amalekite says, I came upon Saul, and I'm paraphrasing here, and he was dying, and he told me to kill him so that they don't mistreat him, and so I did that, and I took his crown and his bracelet, and here they are. And David is just livid. (laughs) And he is grieving over the loss of these men as well, and he does that. But I, I see the sad irony in that. Because Saul would not complete what God had told him to do. It made excuses. Later on, in very reality, an Amalekite killed him. God will have his way. And by the way, the Amalekites continued to plague Israel throughout their history. I better move on here. Um, 1 Kings chapter 19. Here's another excuse. Where am I? Maybe I didn't put that one in. But in 1 Kings 19.10, and let's just go there, um, you have the account of Elijah, and you have him destroying the prophets of Baal, and he's on this mountaintop experience where God shows up and does a mighty work, and then the very next instant he is running from the same king and queen that he that he feared, or that, that, that feared him. <laughs> now he's running from him. And he finds himself down in a cave. Chapter 19, verse 10. And it's, uh, let's go back to verse 9. It says, And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah is the prophet of God. God has been with him and had done mighty things. And now he's running from Jezebel 
and he's hiding in a cave, and God says, what are you doing? There it is. Sometimes God just confronts us in our weaknesses, in our, in our, our failures, right? In our sin. And that's what he does here, because Elijah was running out of fear, and he had just seen what God could do by consuming the burnt offering when it had been all you know watered down and everything else up there on the mountain and it says this in verse 10 so he said i have been very zealous for the lord god of hosts for the children of israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword i alone am left and they seek to take my life the excuses that we use of I'm it. <laughs> I'm the only one. And that we go and we don't serve the Lord because we think that it's not worth it because it's just me. Nobody else will listen. Nobody else will do that. Imagine if the prophet Jeremiah had, had done that. He spent decades and decades preaching a message of repentance and we don't know any instance in Jeremiah's ministry where people repented. You know, it was a lonely existence for Jeremiah. He probably truly was just about it. Now, we know he wasn't completely because there were other believers in that time. But when we look at certain times to be alive, it would have been a very hard existence. And Elijah, too. And I don't, I don't make light of the excuse he does. He's afraid. He's tired. He's, he's got all this stuff going on around him. They're killing the other prophets. And he says, I'm it. That's why I'm hiding in this cave. And, and God recommissions him uh, graciously. And oh, I'm so glad for that. Because I have made excuses in my own life. And God just stops me. And so often when I, when I deserve a good swift kick in the seat, he graciously comes alongside and prods me to do what I need to do. And I've seen that time and time again. That says a lot about God. <laughs> and I'm thankful for that. And he, he's the same God here. Uh, Elijah hiding in a cave. We use that excuse sometimes. And then in Luke chapter 14, there is the account of... Um, the parable Jesus offers or a story here that he uses about a certain man that had a great supper. Verse 16 of chapter 14 of Luke, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. And I ask you to have me excused. And the another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. These are all valid excuses in the sense of like real things that people do. They aren't valid in the sense of you've been invited to an important dinner and there's a spiritual picture here to this. And yet they say, no, I've got this real estate deal. I've got, I got married, you know, whatever. We come up with those excuses. 
So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. And the story goes on, doesn't it? There's a picture here of of the message to the house of Israel. Here's Messiah in their midst. Jesus is standing in their midst. And he invites them in by faith to sit with him and dine. And as a nation, as a people, they reject him. Not all. Obviously, there were thousands of Israelites on the day of Pentecost that were there that believed. But as a nation, they reject their Messiah. And in the picture here is the gospel going to those who are the outcasts. Those who aren't typically invited at, to your dinner table. And you can imagine those listening to this parable and they're listening to this and thinking, what kind of master would do that? I mean, after all, if you're going to put on a big meal, a nice meal, you invite the, the elite, right? You want the best sitting at your table. No, he takes the maimed, the blind, and the, the outcasts, and, and then people of other nations, the Gentiles. And there's a picture of that's how the gospel goes too. Praise the Lord that he includes us in that. And then lastly, the final excuse that's, um, that's here, and it's in, it's in Acts. And again, I, I don't know why, but the verse not showing up there and things, but um, in the book of Acts and in chapter 24. Let's go there. And you have the account here of Paul, the apostle, and he is um, he has been arrested after his third missionary journey. Acts chapter twenty four. Getting there, and he goes before Governor Felix. And if you look at uh, let's see here. Verse 22, Felix has called Paul to him, and um, it says in verse uh, 22, it says, But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, that's early Christians, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysis, Lysis and the commander come down, I will make a decision on your case. And so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him or visit him. He was, he was friendly to Paul. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. In other words, he wanted Paul in his presence specifically to know more about Christ. Now, as he reasoned, that's Paul, as he reasoned about righteousness self-control and of judgment to come Felix was afraid and answered and and the old English says he trembled and the word afraid means to tremble he he actually hears this leader of the Romans and here he is trembling over what he's just heard I believe that that's full conviction in his heart he knew he was a sinner and he knew what Paul was saying was something to be seriously taken Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. The, the last excuse is 
to really kick the can down the road, right? When when I get older or when I when I'm more serious in life, or, or you know, we use that excuse. Then I'll listen. When in reality we know we should deal with Christ now. And that is a sad excuse because there will be people that someday will present before the Lord in judgment at the great, great white throne, and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Even though they had been invited by faith to sit at his table, even though they had heard the word of God and trembled perhaps at their own sin and the consequence of judgment and said, I reject the only lifeline. Felix was such a man, saddest commentary on earth, I think, really is in that. Felix being afraid, and then he says, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. I can't think of a better teacher or pastor or preacher than Paul, the apostle. You couldn't make the excuse, I didn't understand him. Um, No, you know, here's a man, an apostle, a guy who knew the word and knew the God of the word. And you were standing right there and you rejected the message. Listen, friends, don't make excuses. And I'm glad that we can come to him and by faith he receives us and Jesus never makes excuses. Father, thank you for the word of God. And as we go our way this week, help us to...